6, verses 1 and 2. 2 Corinthians 6, 1 and 2. We then, as workers with him together, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now this is the accepted time. Behold, now this is the day of salvation. Thanks, Seth. Good evening, church family. Hope you all had a good day today. Nice to see you all out. We're actually coming to the close of the teaching series that we've been doing for the last two months on stewardship. And we began um, about eight weeks ago pointing out how important it is for us to be good stewards of the variety of gifts that God gives us. And in fact, what we also noticed uh, as we've walked through this, if we're doing some reflection, but also being just careful students, is that we're not always the best at being stewards with the things that God gives us. You know, at the very beginning, about eight weeks ago, I quoted to you several statistics from different research studies and polls that have been done, and mainly in our culture, that reveal that Americans, by and large, are incredibly stressed out with money and time management, you know, not feeling like they have enough money, not feeling like they have enough time to do the things that they want to do. Um, Americans are experiencing difficulty in developing healthy relationships. Americans feel that they're uh, facing great challenge in finding you know, real purpose in their life, what they're doing. Um, and these problems are not you know, just isolated to people that live in Western culture or even people that live in America. These are universal experiences of humanity. And so all of these troubles fall under the need for you and I to be good stewards. So we've dug into stewardship, the idea of stewarding our money and our time well, the idea of stewarding our talents and abilities so that we know what purpose we're here for, and the idea of stewarding our relationships well so that you and I know how to be healthy in that manner. And all of this has been built on two really basic principles of stewardship. So every week I want to continue to remind you what the two most basic ideas that you've got to get into your mind if you're ever going to even think about how do I practice good stewardship? How do I be a responsible steward in my life? And principle one is this, that you and I from the very beginning, from the creation, were designed by God to be stewards meaning that you and I don't actually own and possess all of the things that we have in this life, but those things are gifts given to us because God is the creator of these things, therefore He's the owner. And He's called us not into a relationship with Him and with these things to possess and to own, but to manage and to steward. So our time and our money, the people in our lives, our abilities, those things God has given to us to steward well. Principle number two is this. You and I will become poor at stewardship when we ask the gifts of God to be God for us. When we ask our time or our money or our talents or our friends or relationships to give to us what only God was supposed to give to us, we will consume those things at a rate in which we are not good stewards. Um, whether it be with our time or our money or our friends or our talents, if we ask those things to give us meaning and purpose, identity, value, worth, if we ask them to give those, those things, they won't be able to do this and we will become poor stewards of them. So by default, as we've marched our way through these last two months, 
I really hope that you've learned this one thing, that securing a healthy and vibrant relationship, first and foremost with God through Jesus Christ, where God supplies you with your basic and ultimate needs, is what frees you to be a good steward of these gifts and not be enslaved to them. You know, if you ask your, let's say, for instance, your money to be a replacement for what God is to you, you know, you need to have enough of it to feel secure. You've got to spend enough of it to get acceptance. You've got to have enough of it to impress people so that they like you, so on and so forth. If you ask your money to give you what God is supposed to give you, like acceptance and value and worth, you will constantly be enslaved to money. Maybe thinking you have to work more than what you need to work, or you have to hoard more than you need to hoard, or you're afraid to get rid of it, or you spend too much of it. You'll always be enslaved to your money. But the moment God gives you worth, because he says you exist and therefore I love you, and he gives you value, and he gives you purpose, and he gives you security, all of a sudden you're free from being enslaved to money, and now you're able to steward it. That's the principle we've been talking about. So tonight as we finish... Our gift is going to be a little bit different. It's not going to be like the other resources we've been talking about. Uh, this really, this gift is the basis for all good stewardship in all the other areas of our life. And the gift we're going to talk about tonight is grace. The gift of grace that God has given to us. So a natural question would be, well, why do you actually have to steward grace? You know, if God has given us grace, why, why does grace even need to be stewarded? In fact, the Bible presents this idea, that grace is ever abundant. So it's not a limited resource, nor is it distributed differently. It's abundant. Paul said in Romans 5 that as far as sin goes, grace can go even much farther. It abounds. It's plentiful. So why steward something that's so abundant, right? Just flowing freely to us, just comes whenever we need it, just abundant, we're wealthy in grace. Why would we need to steward grace? Well, stewardship is more than just getting the most or stretching thin a limited resource. Stewardship is more than just managing just a tiny little bit of a resource that you have. Stewardship is getting the most out of what you have, regardless of how much you really have, regardless of the amount. Stewardship is getting the most out of what you have, regardless of the amount. So we're going to ask two questions tonight, really simple, really easy questions, but we're going to have to walk through them to make the most of uh, understanding how to steward grace. Number one, what is grace? What is grace? And number two, what does grace do? Now, for an audience like tonight that maybe a, a good majority of you are Christians, that might sound like an oversimplification, but um, I think as we walk through this, the text that we're looking at, and then the, the, what we're going to explain in our points tonight, we'll see that grace, while it's easy to talk about, is very challenging for the human soul to live with. We're, we're not, the default position of the human heart is not akin to grace. We're not necessarily comfortable with grace. And even in my own experience, uh, the topic of grace is one that has the widest gap between my intellectual knowledge and my experiential living. I'm a person that's really good at talking about and explaining the idea of grace, the free gift of God, undeserved favor, what God has done for us that we couldn't do. I'm really good at intellectually talking about that. But when it comes to living the experience of that, really believing it, not just in my head, but 18 inches south in my heart, 
There's a great distance between those two. And I find that to be a very common thing um, amongst Christians, that we talk a good game of grace, but we oftentimes live a life of works-based salvation, that we have to earn everything for our keep. So we're going to answer these two questions with verse 1 of chapter 6. Actually, just the second half of verse 1. We're going to be in one line tonight of 2 Corinthians 6. Paul has a powerful, packed verse here in verse 1. After he has made this beautiful chapter 4 and chapter 5 gospel presentation, he comes to chapter 6 and he says that you and I are fellow partakers or workers with him, with Paul and with God. Then he says this, because we are joined together this way, verse 1, the second half, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. That's it, that line. We're going we're gonna to try to understand that tonight, okay? Four points from this. We appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Four simple things. We're going to see the approach of grace, the acceptance of grace, the action of grace, and the application of grace. So I'm excited about it. I hope you are. Let's dig into it. Let's start with the approach. Notice Paul says, we appeal to you. So appeal is the word we're going to pull out right now. That's the first point, the approach of grace. The way grace comes to us tells us about the nature of grace. The way that it comes into our lives has a lot to say about what it really is, the, the essence of it. You see, in, if you go to the book of Romans and you walk through that book looking how Paul talks about grace, you'll see that grace is set in contrast to the law of Moses, it's oftentimes compared, um, you know, look at the law of Moses, but really look at grace. You're not under law, but now you're under grace. And they're kind of set in contrast to one another, mainly because those are the two major covenants by which God agreed himself to be in covenant with a people. Law of Moses was the covenant that he made with the Israelites through Moses. And then the law of grace or the, the application of grace is how he relates to us now. And when you look at these in contrast to each other, there's so much that you can see. First of all, you see this. Um, grace comes as an offer. It doesn't come as a command. You know, the Bible doesn't say, you will receive grace, or thou shalt accept grace. It doesn't say that, does it? But if you go to the Old Testament, and especially the law of Moses, it is, you shall not, or you shall, or you shall not, or you shall. It is in the form of a command. But grace does not come to us in the form of a, a command that says, you shall accept grace, or thou shalt not reject grace. It comes to us as an offer. And really, the heart of that is important because that's the essence of Christianity. You see, the gospel is the gospel of Jesus Christ is good news about something that has happened, not good advice of what you should do. The heart of the gospel is a historical message that we herald of what has happened. Jesus Christ, who pre-existed as God the Son, came into the cosmos, entered this world, lived as a man perfect, was rejected by his people, killed under the Gentile Romans, dead in the, dead in the tomb for three days and resurrected back to life, ascended 40 days later to return as the man God back to the Father to mediate for us. In that message right there, I have not told you a single thing to do. 
I have heralded a message of what Jesus Christ has done. Now, whether you believe that or not, whether you accept that or not, does not change the historical reality of that fact. The gospel message is a message, a news, not a piece of advice. The rest of the scripture is going to have a lot of advice for you, a lot of information, a lot of commandments, a lot of instruction. But at the heart of the gospel it is news that you must accept as reality. Okay? The law said, under the law of Moses, that you should do and then you'll be accepted by God. Grace comes and says, I've made you accepted in Jesus Christ. Now go do. It reversed those. So, first of all, the approach of grace is that it comes as an offer not a command. The second is this, that grace comes very near to us while the law was given kind of far away. Just compare Moses and Jesus for a moment. Where did Moses go to get the law? He was with the Israelites, right? Did he stay with them to get the law? He left, didn't he? Went up on to the mountain, was there for 40 days, received the law, came back down, broke him, went back up, got him again, came back down, and he stood in front of the people. So Moses went up and away. Jesus came down and to us, near us. Moses stood at a distance and read the law to the people. Jesus came near to us, <clears throat> and he spoke to us very closely. Jesus came near and spoke personally. Moses, when he read the law, there was a veil over his face. They couldn't look at the face of Moses. It was glowing too much. It was too, too intimidating for them. But in Jesus, we don't see just a veil removed. We see the veil torn down and access to the throne. So grace, does, grace comes to us very closely, very near. But it's not just near to us in proximity, like Moses is far away and Jesus is near. It comes to us very near and very close to us in a personal way. Let me give you just a few examples from how Jesus lived in Scripture. Uh, remember the rich young ruler. That man came to Jesus, and he said he wanted to know how to inherit eternal life. Jesus said, you know the commandments, you should keep them. And he, he said, well, which ones? And he rattled off some, and he said, but I've kept all of these commandments. And the Scripture reveals in the Gospels that Jesus looked at him, and it says Jesus loved him. He looked at him, and he loved him. Grace is about to come to this young man. He, Jesus looked at this man and knew that his possessions, in and of themselves, were not sinful. But the man, this, for this young man, for him particularly, possessions were keeping him from the kingdom. Now, that does not mean generically that possessions will always keep you from the kingdom. For this young man, possessions were keeping him from the kingdom. And so he looked at him, and he had grace. He loved him, and he said, go sell everything. You'll have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. See, grace came personally to this young man. How about the lawyer who stood up and said to Jesus, you know, yeah, okay, we get this, uh, but, but who is my neighbor when he was trying to understand getting close to the kingdom? And he said, love God and love your neighbor. And Jesus said, you're not far from the kingdom, you're close to it. And he said, but who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells a story about a good Samaritan. And at the end of that, you know, he flips the script on this lawyer because the lawyer said, which one of the peoples out there are a neighbor to me that I have to be kind to? What he was wanting to identify is, who do I have to be nice to and who do I not have to be nice to? Who's my neighbor? And at the end, Jesus said, which one of these people is a neighbor? 
You see, grace came very personally to that lawyer. What Jesus was saying is you be a neighbor to all people. Okay? How about the woman at the well? I love when you compare. I, 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 I just can imagine what John was doing in John chapter 3 and John chapter 4 when he was writing. You know, most people recognize that John was not chronologically accurate in all that he was doing. He was writing a lot of stories. Um, in John chapter 3, we have the story of Nicodemus, right? And Nicodemus is a teacher. Um, he's a Pharisee. He's a brilliant man. He's probably part of the Sanhedrin, uh, well-respected. And Jesus says, hey, if you want to enter the kingdom, you have to start all over grace. But he comes to the woman at the well. Now, if I were given these two cases, you know, respectable religious man and harlot, five husbands now living with another man, disrespecting the community, and I was going to tell one of those people who needs to be born again, who would you tell? Who needs to start over? Who needs a fresh start? Be the woman, right? She needs to start over. But Jesus says to Nicodemus, if you want to get into this thing, you're going to have to start over because your record, your resume doesn't count. But to the woman at the well, he says, I've got something that will give you life. She says, can I have it? And he says, I've got to take out of your life the thing you think will give you life. Go call your husband. Do you see how grace comes so personal to them? In every instance, Jesus was saying directly to the person what they needed to hear to receive grace. Nicodemus, be born again. Woman at the well, go get your husband. Lawyer, are you a neighbor? Rich man, get rid of those possessions. In every case, Jesus came near to the person and said, here's what's keeping you from the kingdom. You need grace. You see, the word appeal, when he says we appeal to you, is the root word of that is the same word that we would use for um, the advocate or the Holy Spirit. It's the word para, which means to come very close and to call to somebody. What Paul is saying is when we appeal to you, we come near to you and we call. Grace has to come near to us. I'm convinced that many of us miss the real grace that God has to offer because we've got a Moses-like religion where Jesus on a mountain screams to us commands with a veil over his face that we don't really see who he is. And we say, like those frozen in Deuteronomy 5 who hear the law, they're like, uh... Yeah, Moses, we'll keep all of that. Sounds good. And they never do. But they've got a distant Savior who's just reading to them rules, who's covered in a veil, and they don't know him. Many of us are missing grace because it hasn't come near to us. But for grace to come near, you've got to let yourself be seen by Jesus. And he's got to speak and answer into your fears, your hurts, your doubts, your pain. But if you won't address that, if you won't think about it, if you won't bring your broken heart to Christ, grace will never come near to you. It'll just be a Moses-like figure in the distance. And so that's the approach of grace, that it's got to come near to us. But what do we do with grace? This is where the acceptance of grace comes. You see, he says, we appeal to you not to receive. Receive the grace of God. Now, this part of grace is probably the most counterintuitive part of grace to us as humans. The way a person experiences the benefit of grace also reveals so much about its nature. First of all, grace has to be received, not earned. Grace must be received, not earned. Paul described this in Romans, the very basic makeup of Christianity when he said in Romans 11, verse 6, he says, if it's by grace... 
It's no longer by works. Otherwise, grace wouldn't be grace. You see, if it becomes about works, which the word works means to accomplish a task, to earn something, to do something of your own strength and power, to bring it to closure. If you becoming a Christian is of your works without grace, then by nature it eliminates the idea of grace. Those two can't coexist. This is the basis of Christianity. This is the very factor that takes Christianity and sets it completely apart from every other world religion. Every other world religion has either the four pillars, the five spiritual laws. Uh, those are different versions of, of religions in the world. And what it says is, I've got good information, good advice. And if you do these five things or you follow these four laws and you do this right, you will reach what they call nirvana or salvation. But grace comes and says, I've offered this for you. It is a gift to be received. Any other method that you employ to enjoy the benefit of being reconnected to God, that is not grace, automatically removes it from being Christianity. We reconnect with God because of the gift. Therefore, it must be received. A gift must be received. Now, I'm not talking about the acts of obedience um, that we do to engage in grace. Those acts of obedience must be done from a, from a spirit of faith and gratitude to receive the gift, not earning it. Um, let, let me try to do this illustration for you, see if it makes sense. Um, you ever, like, maybe been sick and somebody brought you a meal? Or you ever been surprised by a nice friend who brought you maybe a Christmas gift that you weren't expecting? And maybe this is a good friend and they think highly of you. They enjoy your relationship and they out of nowhere just want to offer you a gift because they appreciate you and you didn't get them anything. How do you feel instantly when they bring you the gift? How do you feel like you're not expecting it? You didn't know they were thinking about you. and They bring you this bag and they say, hey, you know, you're just really special to me. And I want you to have that. You leave me hanging out to dry here. Okay, that's fine. When I get a gift like that, I oftentimes think, what? I got to pay them back. Well, I immediately start thinking, well, what would they like to get? Oh, man, this makes me feel so special that, that you made me this thing or you got me this thing. And I can't believe you got me this gift that you thought of me. And I start my mind starts reeling. I'm like looking on Amazon on my phone. Like, what should I get this person? You know, I got to got to because we want to pay them back. Right. The default position of the human heart is to earn what you get. To earn what you get. Grace rubs us wrong. Therefore, if grace is received, not earned, secondly, you must be humble and not proud. You know what my Amazon search is really revealing about me? You can say it about me. I won't be offended that I still fight pride. Did you know that? That when somebody says, hey, I got dinner for you tonight. I know you've had a rough week. And you immediately think, well, I've got to wash their kids for them. or I've got to maybe go wash their car. I've got to do something. You know what that's revealing about us? That we still have pride. The humble can receive the gift. Ephesians 2 says that we receive grace. We are saved by grace, not works. That is the gift of God, um, not to be earned. James 4, verse 6 says, God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. You see, God is not up in heaven saying, well, uh, you're proud, I will not give you grace, but you're humble, here, you can have it. That's not what he's saying. He's saying humility is the position that your heart has to be in before grace will ever get in. 
If you are proud and you are religious, grace is not part of your formula. If you are proud and you're religious, you will be self-righteous. You see, what he's saying is pride is the barrier for grace to ever come into your life. Humility is what it takes to receive a gift, not to always seek to pay people back when they do something for us, especially God. Okay, so we've got the approach of grace that comes near, the acceptance of grace. We've got to receive it as a gift. Third, the action of grace. The action of grace. We can see this action in two ways. The objective and the subjective, if you'll follow with me. Um, He says here, you know, we appeal to you not to receive. Now we're talking about the grace of God. If you look down in verse 2, he quotes, um, I believe it's from Isaiah. He says, in a favorable time, I listened to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Two distinct things happening there. One is a generic. In, In a generic time, I've been willing to listen. This is kind of the objective part. But in a specific day, I've helped you, I've saved you. The objective action of grace, meaning like uh, cosmic, sort of holistic for everybody, the objective, whether you believe it or not, action of grace is what draws us to God. Because of the work of Jesus, I know that I can come to God. Uh, Hebrews 4.16 says that because we have a great high priest, we know that we can approach boldly with confidence the throne of grace to find help and grace in the time of need. It is the action of Jesus Christ, the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, burial, resurrection, and ascension. What Jesus did, when you know that objectively, is what lays the groundwork for you to come to the throne of God, to come near to God. Hebrews 10 will tell us as well, when we know of the offer that's been made for us, that by the blood of Jesus Christ, the veil has been torn down and you and I can enter into the Holy of Holies, we have a confidence that we can come close to God because of what Jesus has done. Grace has made salvation, reconciliation with God, available. And grace eliminates the fear that we have of coming near to God. That's what grace does. So that's the objective work of grace. But what about the subjective? The subjective action of grace is where our lives become transformed. Now I've pointed out this text to to you all that have been coming to our class, but in um, Titus chapter 2, probably one of the most comprehensive uh, sections to talk about grace. In verses 11 through 14, listen to what Paul says as he expounds upon what grace is. He says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Verse 12, here's what grace does. It trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. So it trains us to get rid of the evil, but here's what it also does. It trains us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope and the appearing of of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and purify himself, a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And he tells Titus to declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority the teaching of what grace does. The subjective action of grace in your life is that it teaches you, it trains you to deny ungodliness and worldly passions and to pursue self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Well, how does grace do that, right? How does grace 
teach me and train me to get rid of evil and to pursue that which is good. Well, if you go back and walk through the first two parts of grace, that it comes near to us, that it comes into our hurts, our pains, our own fears and our doubts, and it answers those things. It produces a faith and a gratitude when we receive it as a gift, not something that we earn. It leaves us constantly in a position where we are grateful for what God has done for us and develop a heart that has a deep love for Him that says, I don't want ungodly passions and worldly desires because I've learned that these things will not fill me up. These things will not satisfy me. But if I practice self-controlled, upright, and godly life, I'll be in the flow of God's grace and I'll have exactly what I've always needed. See, grace is not just our source for justification. Grace is not just the beginning step that lets you off the hook that says, with the judge, you're not guilty anymore. Grace is more than just justification. It's a power for sanctification. It's got to be the source that we come back to. And we'll finish with this thought. So that's the objective and subjective work of grace. Finally, the application. If you go back to 2 Corinthians 6, we see that he says, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. He says, don't receive God's grace in vain. Not in vain. This is the application. Here's where we get to the heart of stewarding grace, of what stewardship really looks like. What do you think Paul means when he says that we shouldn't receive the grace of God in vain? Um, Vain here means that when something is not producing a result, when something is ineffective, when something is fruitless, when you say, oh, that was a vain effort, or that was a vain opportunity, meaning that it didn't produce a result. It didn't produce the desired effect. It was fruitless. Paul is meaning that grace is supposed to have an effect on your life, that you're supposed to see a marked difference from day one until later when you've received grace. It is inconceivable for the Apostle Paul to think that a person can say, I've received grace, but my life has not changed. If I say that I've received grace and my life has not changed, Paul would say one or two of those things is wrong. It's inconceivable. Grace is dynamic. It's powerful. Grace reshapes people for life. Real grace does that, but how? So let's talk quickly about how to steward it. First of all, you have to keep grace as the foundation for your Christian life, your entire existence, for as long as you live. Romans 5, 1 and 2 says that by faith, because we now have peace with God through faith, we have access into grace, which is our foundation. Grace is the foundation of the Christian life. In fact, in Galatians, when Paul was addressing those Christians that were leaving grace to go back to earning their salvation by those Judaizers, he said, those of you that are trying to be uh, saved by your circumcision, by keeping the law, he says, you have fallen away from grace. You have left the foundation of grace. You and I as Christians, from day one until forever that we're done with this, have to fight for grace to remain our foundation. We will be constantly tempted to go back to a earning works-based religion with God. So it's got to be our foundation. Number two, grace has to feed your soul. It must feed your soul. Second Thessalonians says that with grace we have an eternal comfort and a blessed hope. Daily devotional needs to bring you back to grace. So if you practice daily prayer, daily time in Scripture, quiet time, you've got to work towards getting back to an understanding of grace every day. 
How does every story teach you about grace? How does every prayer bring you back to how good God and merciful God has been to you? So grace has to constantly be feeding your soul. And number three, grace has to fuel both your private and your public transformation. Those two things can't be separate. They have to be one. Transformation, if it's private, must be public. And transformation, if it's public, needs to also be private. Those two things cannot be separated. It has to be the thing that changes your life. Like I've said before, grace frees you to come to the light of God, to be exposed for all of our sin, to confess that sin, and then be comforted in God's forgiveness. Grace then empowers the believer to grow into the image of Christ, to bear the fruit of the Spirit. Um, for further study on this, read Romans chapter 8, the whole chapter, when he finally gets down and says, Who can condemn us? What court can anyone in this world charge me with anything against? Because it's the love of God in Jesus Christ that has saved me. And if that's true, he says in Romans 8, verses 28 29, that the whole purpose, that God works together all things for good, so that you'll become like Jesus Christ, bear the fruit of the Spirit. Grace also must empower our service publicly. In Acts chapter 6, when Stephen was about to be stoned, in verse 8, it says that he was a man who was full of grace. And that's what I believe, which empowered. If you go back and read Acts chapter 6, Stephen is about to be stoned um, to death by people. And in Acts chapter 6, he preaches one of the longest sermons in the Bible about the grace of God. And when he's dying, he, he cries out that God would not hold this sin against those that were casting stones to kill him. How did he do that? How did he serve those people so much? He was patient because he knew the grace that he needed to be a Christian. And you and I will be patient with those that need service when we recognize that we need grace too. And so we'll be thankful for what we have in Christ and we will be wanting others to have that as well. And we won't be short-tempered and tired of people needing service because we will know if grace is feeding our soul daily, how much, we, how much grace we've needed how much I've consumed of grace. And so our service will be active and our hope will be secure. Tasting grace in the present is what gives us hope for full grace to come. Peter says that we've set our hope on the grace that will fully be revealed in Jesus Christ. So to summarize, what I would mean by stewardship of grace is this. It means that you and I fight diligently the temptation of Satan to keep grace as the foundation of our life marked by a life of gratitude and hope, while we submit to the power of grace to change us, admitting our sin, accepting the gift of forgiveness, and then sharing with others both the fruit of our lives being changed in service and the story of our lives being changed in our witness so that people can know the great and awesome grace of God. Grace in your faith will demand one major thing from you, if you're a person who's religious and has faith, but it's a part of grace, it's going to ask one serious thing of you, and you've got to be ready. It will demand that your life no longer be about you. If grace is the basis for your faith, by necessity it means that your faith is not about you. It's something that you've been received as a gift. If grace is involved, that means what you have is a gift, and if there's a gift, there must be a giver of that gift. Now, poor stewardship of all the other gifts is a result of asking those gifts to give us what only God can give us, like money and time and relationships and talents. But grace is different. 
You see, grace can't actually replace God. You can't ask grace to give you what God can give you. It's different than this. It's not like money or time. Grace is God. So the only way for you to poorly steward grace is to change the definition of what grace is. That's the only way you'll mess grace up. If you strip grace away from God and what you only ask for is escape from punishment but want nothing to do with God, you haven't just you know, missed out on grace. You've redefined grace, and it's not possible. Grace is a gift. It comes from a giver, but you can't have this gift without the giver himself because the giver who is God gave you not just some random token of his affection. He didn't send you flowers or buy you some nice thing. The gift he sent you was himself. Jesus is grace. And so you can't have grace unless you have Jesus. And when you get Jesus, you will steward all other aspects of your life well. But you've got to get him. The cost to bring us back to God was not some fine thing, was not some gift that is an inanimate object. It was Jesus Christ himself. And that offer, that gift from God, is something that you and I must, in our humility, recognize that it was our sin that put him there. And it was his love that sent him there. And at the cross, those two things come together, and God says, I am both just punishing sin, and I'm the justifier of those sinners that need forgiveness. And when you get that, you'll become the most free person in the world, able to steward all the things that you have, because you have the most important thing, God through Jesus Christ. Let's stand and sing. We're here to help.